The last episode of Patriot Podcast saw the skirmishes at Lexington and Concord where Massachusetts militiamen stood their ground against the British Army under General Thomas Gage, who had intended to confiscate the colonists' weapons and munitions stores. Gage was forced to retreat to Boston, surrounded by thousands of angry militiamen. Though this event is now viewed as the beginning of the American Revolution, in the following weeks it was seen as purely a Boston rebellion. There were no intentions of going to war with Great Britain. Two men from Connecticut, Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold, would soon change all of that. I'm Cambrielle Clackham, and welcome to Patriot Podcast. Today's episode is Let It Begin Here, Part 2. When an express rider carried news of the bloodshed between Patriot militia and British regulars to Brigadier General Artemis Ward, Commander-in-Chief of Massachusetts Militia, Ward was in bed with a gallbladder attack. Though sick and in a great deal of pain, Ward rode immediately for Cambridge to command the besieging army. On April 23, 1775, the Boston Committee of Safety elected Dr. Joseph Warren to fill the position of chairman as John Hancock was leaving for Philadelphia as a delegate to the Second Continental Congress. Warren was also elected to Hancock's place in the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. Warren knew that maintaining a standing militia to besiege Boston was going to be nearly impossible, particularly since many were farmers and needed to go and attend their fields. His hope was to enlist a regular army of 8,000, paid and engaged through the end of the year. American men, on the whole, were not used to serving in a regular army, but militia to be called up when needed. Most of these men had households, fields, trades, and families to attend. They were not, as with many European armies, professional soldiers. In fact, if you've been listening to this podcast, you've probably heard me talk about the American soldiers at Yorktown who asked some of the French soldiers about their occupations, which drew a laugh from the French soldiers. They were soldiers by occupation, of course. As news of Lexington and Concord swept across the colonies, men flocked to Boston to offer their service. Israel Putnam, a well-seasoned veteran and member of the Sons of Liberty, was plowing his field when he heard the news. He immediately left, not even stopping to change his clothes, and rode over a hundred miles to Boston in eight hours, then offered his service to Ward. Putnam, whose exploits with Major Robert Rogers had given him a great name, was commissioned Brigadier General and given the authority to recruit men from Connecticut, after which he would return to Boston. Putnam was a fascinating figure about whom a number of tales circulated. Allegedly, he had crawled on his belly into the den of a great wolf who had killed dozens of sheep and had killed the wolf. Nathaniel Green, a Rhode Island Quaker who had helped form his local militia, the Kentish Guards, was given command of the newly formed Rhode Island Army of Observation, historically leaping from private to brigadier general in a day. Green had a bad limp and a number of health issues, and the guards had never elected him an officer because of it. 
Green left behind his young wife, Katie, pregnant with their first child, to bring his men to Roxbury, Massachusetts, and offer to serve under Ward. Green, a humble and very pious man, had no issue offering his Rhode Island militia to serve under the Massachusetts command, and was granted a place on the right wing under Major General John Thomas. Another militiaman offering his service to Ward was Henry Knox, the young Boston bookseller. Knox had lost everything and had been forced to evacuate the city with only his wife Lucy and a few of their possessions, including Henry's sword, which Lucy had sewn into her cloak. Henry had no family remaining, and Lucy's loyalist family had turned their backs on her, so the close-knit pair had really only each other until the birth of their first child, little Lucy, the following year. Knox was self-taught through his tremendous love of reading and had studied military tactics, particularly artillery and engineering. Those skills would very soon prove to be practical. Connecticut apothecary and militia captain Benedict Arnold had a long list of reasons to loathe recent British policy, not the least of which was how the Sugar Act had affected his business. Arnold, a member of the Sons of Liberty, had marched on New London, Connecticut, and seized the public powder store to prevent the British Army reaching it. After this, the hot-blooded Arnold was ready for some more action. He marched to Boston to aid in the siege, during which time he made his case to Warren that he knew of an accessible source of cannon and munitions in New York. Fort Ticonderoga, Iroquois for Between Two Waters, was positioned between Lakes Champlain and George. It had been captured in 1759 from the French, who had destroyed parts of it and had blown up the powder magazine, and it was allowed to fall into disrepair in the intervening years. In 1775, it held stores of artillery and munitions for the British Army, but more importantly, it was strategically situated along the British route from Canada. Ticonderoga was rather lightly guarded, and to Benedict Arnold, a worthy cause, as it would hinder British attempts to march down and quell the rebellion. May 3, 1775, the Boston Committee of Safety commissioned Arnold a colonel, giving him resources and authority to recruit up to 400 men. As Arnold's officers recruited men for the mission, he wasn't the only one with designs on Ticonderoga. The Connecticut Committee of Safety learned of his plan and began setting in motion their own strategy. Colonel Ethan Allen commanded a motley militia band known as the Green Mountain Boys, formed due to territorial disputes in the Hampshire Grants, land acquired from the French following the French and Indian War. Many of the officers and members of the Green Mountain Boys were closely or distantly related to Allen. Allen would later write, Ever since I arrived at the state of manhood and acquainted myself with the general history of mankind, I have felt a sincere passion for liberty. So that the first systematical and bloody attempt at Lexington to enslave America thoroughly electrified my mind and fully determined me to take part with my country. And, while I was wishing for an opportunity, directions were sent to me from Connecticut to raise the Green Mountain Boys to surprise and take Ticonderoga. 
Arnold hurried north to meet Allen at Castleton in modern-day Vermont. Arnold had wanted to command the expedition, as this was his plan, and he had been granted authority by Massachusetts to take the fort. But the rowdy and somewhat lawless Green Mountain Boys were only accustomed to following Allen, and refused to follow Arnold's command. The two men finally came to terms with more or less sharing command, though this was not what either one wanted. Late on the night of May 9th, Allen and Arnold arrived at Hands Cove and awaited boats to row up Lake Champlain to the fort. Boats finally arrived around 1.30 a.m., only two of them. Arnold, Allen, and 83 of the Green Mountain Boys crossed over, the boats returning for more men. This was going to take far too long, and daylight would be upon them before all of their men could cross. So Allen and Arnold agreed that they would rush the fort with a smaller force than was originally intended. After all, they still had nearly double the number of men within the fort, and the element of surprise. As they approached the fort, a lone sentry attempted to fire upon them, but his musket misfired, and he fled as the invaders overran the fort. The fort's defenders were sleeping, but they were soon pulled from their beds at musket point. Captain Jocelyn Feltham demanded to know by what authority the fort was being seized, and Allen later wrote that his reply was, "...in the name of the Great Jehovah and Continental Congress." The fort's commander, Captain William Delaplace, hearing the commotion, dressed himself hurriedly and came out to surrender his sword to Allen. There were no casualties save a bayonet injury to one of Allen's men, but some 50 British were captured, all of the fort's defenders. After the surrender, some of the Green Mountain Boys began raiding and looting the fort's stores, especially the liquor. Arnold argued vehemently with Allen and his band over this looting, but he lost out. Allen did, at least, issue receipts to Delaplace to be repaid for the loss of provisions. Meanwhile, Allen's captain, Seth Warner, rode up Lake Champlain with a hundred men to capture another British fort in ill repair. Fort Crown Point had suffered a chimney fire which had virtually destroyed the walls. When Warner's men arrived, there were but nine men defending the post, which was easily captured. The capture of these forts would prove to be an important victory for the Patriots for two main reasons other than morale. Within these forts were dozens of cannon and mortar, which would become crucial later in ending the siege of Boston and severing the connection between Quebec and Boston. The fear was that the governor of Quebec, General Sir Guy Carleton, might send troops down and artillery to defeat the besieging force around Boston. On May 10th, the same day Ticonderoga was captured, the Second Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia with Virginia lawyer Peyton Randolph as its president. Randolph had been the last speaker and leader of the Virginia House of Burgesses and the first president of the First Continental Congress. As I said previously, this was not yet a full-blown war, though many of the colonies had already put themselves into a posture of defense in case of the worst. 
Most still maintained hopes that this rebellion would come to an agreeable end with the colonists restored to British rule with the same rights as their English brethren. This, however, was an exceedingly rosy viewpoint, as the colonists would soon realize. On May 24th, Boston Merchant and Sons of Liberty member John Hancock replaced Peyton Randolph as president of the Second Continental Congress. 53-year-old Randolph had been intermittently suffering with poor health, but had been doing all he could for his country since the dissolution of the Virginia Burgesses by Governor John Murray, Lord Dunmore. Now, because Randolph had been leading an illegal assembly and actively participating in treason, many feared he would be arrested. So a Williamsburg volunteer company of militia escorted Randolph to his home, which is right in view of the governor's palace. Now today we think of one man as being the father of our country, but when Randolph arrived in his hometown, he was wildly celebrated and called the father of your country by patriotic Virginians. The capture of Fort Ticonderoga meant that Congress had no choice but to act. This was not going to remain a Boston rebellion for long. The path was creeping ever closer to actual war. Congress, now under John Hancock, had a great task ahead. Create an illegal army to withstand attempts at subjugation by their own parent country. On June 14, 1775, the Continental Congress passed the creation of a standing, regular army in the North American colonies, the Continental Army. To all, the most obvious choice to command the new Continental Army was the well-known militia colonel George Washington, who had been part of the First Virginia Convention which had created Continental Congress. Massachusetts lawyer and congressional delegate John Adams wrote to his wife, Abigail, Colonel Washington appears at Congress in his uniform and, by his great experience and abilities in military matters, is of much service to us. 43-year-old George Washington was extraordinarily wealthy, but the unassuming surveyor and planter only meant to offer his service, not to command the entire army, and he feared leaving his wife, Martha, alone at their Mount Vernon estate. He was familiar with the vindictive and heavy-handed nature of Lord Dunmore, so he dreaded the possibility that Dunmore would lay waste to Mount Vernon. On June 23rd, he wrote, My dearest, as I am within a few minutes of leaving this city, I could not think of departing from it without dropping you a line, especially as I do not know whether it may be in my power to write again till I get to the camp at Boston." I go fully trusting in that providence which has been more bountiful to me than I deserve, and in full confidence of a happy meeting with you some time in the fall. I retain an unalterable affection for you which neither time or distance can change. When Washington vacated his place in Continental Congress, his fourth cousin was elected to fill his place. Thomas Nelson, Jr. hailed from Yorktown, Virginia, and had been one of the staunchest opposers of British tyranny in his region. Nelson had boarded the merchant ship Virginia in 1774, throwing into Yorktown Harbor the tea intended for John Prentice of Williamsburg. The Sugar, Stamp, and Townsend Acts severely damaged the Nelson holdings and had reduced their fortune greatly. 
Nelson would personally loan Congress $200,000, about $2 million in today's value, not one penny of which would ever be returned to him. His greatest service would come later on as the commander of the Virginia militia and as that state's governor. Four major generals were appointed immediately to support Washington, Artemis Ward, his adjutant, Philip Schuyler, Israel Putnam, and Charles Lee. Obviously, with the colonies entering a state of rebellion against Great Britain, the colonial governors sought to stamp out this sedition, all but one whom George Washington called the first of the patriots. Harvard-educated merchant and militia officer Governor Jonathan Trumbull was not wishy-washy in his support for the Patriot cause. He ardently opposed the coercive acts and what they would do to the citizens of Boston. When General Gage requested the Connecticut governor send aid, Trumbull flatly refused and, in fact, had supplied the troops besieging Boston. He decried Lexington and Concord as a most unprovoked attack upon the lives and property of His Majesty's subjects. The extraordinarily successful Trumbull owned a store in Lebanon, Connecticut, which would become his war office, earning Connecticut the moniker the Provision State. Governor Trumbull was exceedingly generous in his efforts to feed and supply troops, forge workers in New Jersey, and even needy civilians throughout the war. Though virtually every household had multiple firelocks with shot and powder, supplying arms, munitions, and powder enough for a war was not going to be easy. There was, at that time, only one single mill in the North American colonies producing gunpowder, Oswald Eves Mill in Frankfort, Pennsylvania. The Continental Army had about 80,000 pounds of powder, which would be diminished quickly, particularly due to inadequate shelter from the rain. The manufacturing and obtaining of powder was of extreme importance through commissioning new mills in America and offering a higher price, through import from France, Switzerland, and the West Indies, and even through piracy and privateering. That June, committees from South Carolina and Georgia seized a shipment of 16,000 pounds of powder on the way to Georgia Governor Wright. Georgia then sent 5,000 pounds of powder to Philadelphia to aid in the siege of Boston. General Thomas Gage, military governor of Massachusetts, commanded the garrison at Boston where the British Army was effectively sequestered following the action at Lexington and Concord. Rebel militia surrounded much of the land around the city and had begun fortifying points of interest. Charlestown, jutting out to the north of Boston across the Charles River, had not been defended by the Americans, and Gage hoped to occupy Charlestown with the support of the Royal Navy in the harbor. On June 13th, the Boston Committee of Safety learned of this and soon moved to place troops there. Putnam was ordered to have men dig defenses atop Bunker Hill, a task which he assigned to Colonel William Prescott. The evening of June 16, 1775, Prescott and 1,500 men made their way to Charlestown with digging implements to carry out their orders. For reasons much debated and speculated upon over the past 244 years, 
they came to nearby Breed's Hill rather than Bunker. The two are situated close together, with Breed's closer to the shore, and some have speculated that it was merely a mistake, though perhaps Prescott felt Breed's offered a better vantage point on Boston. Whatever the reason, a little after midnight, the militiamen began digging a redoubt on Breed's Hill, working so silently that the British were unaware of their activities. Henry Knox, who had already been proving his knowledge of engineering and artillery during the siege, was to direct the cannon on Breed's Hill. Talk of rebel militia at Charlestown reached Boston, and General Sir Henry Clinton urged Gage to send a force to run them away, but Gage decided to wait and see if the reports were exaggerated. Their confirmation came with morning light, which illuminated a new redoubt from which cannon could easily bombard them. Gage called a military conference that morning and gave Major General William Howe command of a force of 2,200 men who would oust the rebels from Charlestown. Certainly the British regulars believed the smaller band of militia would quit the post with little to no fight. As Howe's men prepared to attack, the Americans were working on a breastwork in their new redoubt. HMS Lively attempted to bombard them, frightening some of the untried soldiers, some of whom threw down their digging implements and took cover behind earthen walls. But Prescott was an excellent commander. When he climbed the parapet and walked around atop the works, his men returned to digging. He then encouraged them, joking with them, praising their work, and assuring them that the cannon fire would not reach them. It did, however, burst their water casks, and a small party was sent to obtain more water. Among that party was 40-year-old farmer turned militiaman, Asa Pollard. A ball hit Pollard's head, decapitating him instantly. From atop the parapet, Prescott surveyed the British artillery positions. The cannonade continued most of the day with no effect. Supporting the lively were other ships and a battery from nearby Copse Hill. When Putnam was awakened in the early morning by the sound of cannon fire, he got up quickly and rode to Breed's Hill. After meeting with Prescott, Putnam rode for Cambridge, the American headquarters where their commander was still suffering with his gallbladder. Ward would not spare troops to Charlestown as they were needed to defend Cambridge, particularly in the event that the British surrounded the troops at Breed's Hill. Historians and authors have often criticized Ward for this, but it would be hardly due to march more men than were necessary into a position where they might have been captured. That could have severely damaged the American cause before it could properly gain momentum. I personally think that Ward made the best call he could with the situation he was in. Putnam left Cambridge and headed for Bunker Hill, where his men would begin work on a redoubt, and artillery under Colonel Richard Gridley would set up. By late morning, the men at Breed's Hill, exhausted from digging nearly 12 hours straight and with no supplies remaining, were hungry, thirsty, and overheated. The artillery fire had destroyed their drinking water. There was no relief on the way, and so Prescott had to inform the men who built the fortifications that they would also be defending them, though he did send for supplies. 
Howe's plan called for a two-part assault that would surround Breed's Hill with troops executing an assault on the redoubt and troops coming up from Mystic River to attack at Prescott's left flank, which was exposed to the beach. He planned to begin the assault at high tide, which was to be two o'clock that day. Howe gave command of the frontal assault to Brigadier General Robert Piggott, Command of nearby Copps Hill, from which the artillery would support the assault, was given to Major General John Burgoyne, and Clinton was to stand by in Boston until called upon for reinforcements. Admiral Samuel Graves, nephew of Admiral Thomas Graves, would support the assault with grape, canister, and hot shot from his ships. As the British were preparing their assault, the Americans had time to reinforce their defenses, including stone and rail fencing along the left flank toward the beach on Mystic River. Meanwhile, Putnam's men were digging in at nearby Bunker Hill, where Prescott had been originally ordered. Some 2,200 British arrived by barge at Moulton's Point, Charlestown, early in the afternoon. They marched to the foot of Breed's Hill and began unpacking their meal, which gave the Americans time to finish reinforcing their defenses and to make preparations. Colonel John Stark's New Hampshire men continued to work on the left defenses toward Mystic River, building stone breastwork and repairing a rail fence. Stark had his men stuff grass and hay into the gaps of the fencing in order to conceal rows of New Hampshire militia who would repel an assault on the left flank. Howe split the army in half. He took 1,100 to Mystic River, and Piggott took the remaining 1,100 for an uphill assault. Howe led the first assault up from the beach at Mystic River, where they faced <clears throat> excuse me where they faced fire from american militia largely stark's men who wrought such casualties on the invading troops that howe was forced to retreat after three attempts then piggott led the second assault up breed's hill toward the redoubt the americans did not have an abundance of ammunition so they waited until the slow progression was in range before opening fire Contrary to the more modern myths, there is no evidence that Prescott commanded the soldiers to hold fire until they saw the whites of their enemy's eyes, nor that any such range was observed. When they did open fire, it was with crack accuracy, quickly repelling the second assault. The British were taking heavy casualties, but Howe was not about to abandon the hill to the Americans. He sent for Clinton, who arrived with Marines of the 2nd Battalion and 63rd Regiment of Foot, Grenadiers. The third assault ran right up into the redoubt as the Americans were running low on ammunition and some began to flee. The British led a bayonet charge and engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the remaining defenders using muskets as clubs. 34-year-old Dr. Joseph Warren, serving as a volunteer, was killed in this hand-to-hand -hand fight inside the redoubt, sniffing out one of the colony's foremost supporters of liberty at the outset of the war. Eventually, the Americans had no choice but to retreat from Breeds and Bunker Hills all the way to Cambridge. The British captured the two hills and built their own defenses atop them. British losses in the battle were heavy at over a thousand killed and wounded, including 19 officers killed.
The Americans lost 450 killed and wounded. Though the British won the battle and drove the Americans from Charlestown, it came at great cost. The Americans had much cause for pride as they bravely held on to the hill, repelling two assaults and reducing British forces by roughly a third. The Americans had, however, lost one of their most beloved revolutionary figures, Dr. Warren. John Quincy Adams, who watched the battle with his mother, Abigail, would later write, The year 1775 was the eighth year of my age. Boston became a walled and beleaguered town, garrisoned by British grenadiers with Thomas Gage, their commanding general, commissioned governor of the province. For the space of twelve months, my mother, with her infant children, dwelt, liable every hour of the day and of the night to be butchered in cold blood or taken and carried into Boston as hostages by any foraging or marauding detachment of men. My father was separated from his family on his way to Continental Congress, and there my mother, with her children, lived in unintermitted danger of being consumed with them all in a conflagration kindled by a torch in the same hands which on the 17th of June lighted the fires of Charlestown. I saw with my own eyes those fires and heard Britannia's thunders in the Battle of Bunker's Hill and witnessed the tears of my mother and mingled them with my own at the fall of Dr. Warren, a dear friend of my father and a beloved physician to me. He had been our family physician and surgeon and had saved my forefinger from amputation under a very bad fracture." Nathaniel Green, upon hearing of the battle, remarked, I wish we could sell them another hill at the same price. Howe himself wrote, I freely confess, when I look to the consequences of it, in the loss of so many brave officers, I do it with horror. The success is too dearly bought. Howe's Pyrrhic victory at Breed's Hill that day would become a source of much criticism to the skilled veteran, none more harsh than from himself. Warren's body, thrown into a mass grave by the British, was later exhumed by his fellow patriots, and Paul Revere identified his friend by the tooth he himself had crafted for the doctor. This may have been the first case of a corpse being identified by dental remains. At the time of Warren's death, his fiancée, Mercy Scolay, was tending his four children, staying with friends in Worcester. Mercy was utterly, de utterly devastated by Joseph Warren's death and would never marry. She faithfully interceded with revolutionary leaders for the financial care of the children, whose father had given his life in the service of the fledgling country. Mercy wanted to care for them herself, but Joseph's brother, John, legally adopted all four. Benedict Arnold personally gave 500 silver dollars to Mercy for the children, and in 1780, Congress awarded the children their father's pension. On June 25th, Washington wrote to General Schuyler, informing him of his post as commander of the American troops in New York and giving him instructions for the defenses in the North, including the captured British defenses. Two days later, on the 27th, Congress authorized Schuyler to probe the practicability of conducting a foray into Canada. I will discuss more on that in an upcoming episode. 
June 27th saw the court-martial of artillery captain John Callender for cowardice at the Battle of Bunker Hill. Putnam had found some of Colonel Richard Gridley's artillerymen fleeing down the hill with cannon, and when he ordered Callender to return, the captain answered that he had no cartridges, which Putnam quickly found to be untrue. Another officer later testified that the cartridges available were the wrong size for Callender's piece. Furious, Putnam screamed at the artillerymen, allegedly striking some of them with the flat of his sword. Callender and the others returned to their post, but fled afterward. Putnam was disgusted and felt that the battle might have been won, and Charlestown held by the Americans had the artillery at Bunker Hill supported Breed's Hill. After being court-martialed and cashiered, Callender later joined the Continental Army and would demonstrate great heroism. Now, Gridley had two sons, Scarborough and Samuel, who had also been irresponsible and cowardly at Bunker Hill and were court-martialed as well. Events such as this would be the undoing of Gridley, ushering in a new artillery commander. On July 3rd, Washington arrived at Cambridge to begin the monumental task of establishing his command structure and designing the new Continental Army. Next week, I will be releasing a mini-episode featuring Washington's general orders and the situation he walked into upon assuming such a weighty office, as the content is far too much to insert in this episode. In June and July, 16 Brigadier Generals were commissioned, the youngest of whom being Nathaniel Green, a man with no real military experience. Washington saw something in the eager Green, something his comrades in Rhode Island had never bothered to look past his unassuming appearance to see, and that something would earn Green the distinction of being Washington's right-hand man. The Greens and the Washingtons would grow very close, and the Greens would name their first two children George Washington and Martha Washington. Another young officer in whom Washington saw great potential was Henry Knox, whose service at Breed's Hill had been noticed. Washington struck up a friendship with Knox and saw that the young man was full of wisdom and excellent ideas. He wanted to see Knox commissioned in the new Continental Army, as did John Adams. Knox wrote Adams about the extent to which Colonel Richard Gridley had fallen in favor as the commander of artillery and engineering. To Knox, Adams wrote, I have been impressed with an opinion of your knowledge and abilities in the military way for several years, and of late have endeavored, both at camp at Waterton and at Philadelphia, by mentioning your name and character, to make you more known and consequently in a better way for promotion. Mercy Otis Warren, political writer, ardent patriot, and wife of James Warren, president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, wrote to her friend John Adams on the condition of those affected by the siege. I cannot forbear to drop a tear over the inhabitants of our capital, most of them sent naked from the city to seek retreat in the villages and to cast themselves on the charity of the first hospitable hand that will receive them. Those who are left behind are exposed to the daily insults of a foe lost to that sense of honor, freedom, and valor, once the characteristic of Britain, 
And even the generosity and humanity which has long been the boast of all civilized nations, the plagues of famine, pestilence, and tyranny reign within the walls, the artillery of war continually thundering in our ears. The sea-coasts are kept in constant apprehensions of being made miserable by the depredations of the once formidable navy of Britain, now degraded to a level with the corsairs of Barbary. They will not suffer a poor fisherman to cast his hook into the ocean to bring a little relief to the hungry inhabitants without the pitiful bribe of a dollar each to the use of Admiral Graves. The faithless gauge will be marked with infamy for breach of promise, and now they are forbidden even to look out from their own housetops when he sends out his ruffians to butcher their brethren and wrap in flames the neighboring towns. About this time, she penned another political piece, The Group, a satirical work about King George III revoking the rights of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. James and Mercy both penned a number of pro-liberty pieces, with Mercy anonymously writing letters and plays. Consequently, it is not fully known how many pieces she herself wrote. Her 1772 play, The Adulature, a tragedy about then-Governor Thomas Hutchinson, was published into a pamphlet and circulated as a pro-liberty piece. Virginia lawyer and former Burgess Thomas Jefferson drafted a letter for approval by Congress which desired to send an olive branch petition to King George III. Jefferson's draft was more incendiary than the delegates intended, and so Philadelphia lawyer and political writer John Dickinson, known now as the penman of the Revolution, fine-tuned the final draft. On July 5th, Congress adopted the Olive Branch Petition, which sought to repair relations between Great Britain and the colonies without a war, and without seeing their rights trampled by Parliament. We solemnly assure your majesty, we not only most ardently desire the former harmony may be restored, but that a concord may be established between them upon so firm a basis as to perpetuate its blessings uninterrupted by any future dissensions to succeeding generations in both countries. We beg leave to further assure your majesty that, notwithstanding the sufferings of your loyal colonists during the course of the present controversy, our breasts retain too tender a regard for the kingdom from which we derive our origin to request such a reconciliation as might in any manner be inconsistent with her dignity or her welfare." Your Majesty will find your faithful subjects on this continent ready and willing at all times, as they have ever been with their lives and fortunes, to assert and maintain the rights and interests of Your Majesty and of our mother country. The following day, Congress adopted the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms, also drafted by Jefferson and Dickinson. After listing the abuses and usurpations of Great Britain toward the American colonies, the Declaration stated, Fruitless were all the entreaties, arguments, and eloquence of an illustrious band of the most distinguished peers and commoners who nobly and strenuously asserted the justice of our cause to stay or even to mitigate the heedless fury with which these accumulated and unexampled outrages were hurried on. 
Equally fruitless was the interference of the city of London, of Bristol, and many other respectable towns in our favor. Parliament adopted an insidious maneuver calculated to divide us to establish a perpetual auction of taxations where colonies should bid against colony, all of them uninformed what ransom would redeem their lives, and thus to extort from us at the point of bayonet the unknown sums that should be sufficient to gratify, if possible to gratify, ministerial rapacity, with the miserable indulgence left to us of raising, in our own mode, the the prescribed tribute. What terms more rigid and humiliating could have been dictated by remorseless victors to conquered enemies? In our circumstances, to accept them would be to deserve them. News of the battle at Breed's Hill reached King George III by August 23rd, and he immediately proclaimed the colonies to be in an open state of rebellion. Whereas many of our subjects in North America, misled by dangerous and ill-meaning men and forgetting the allegiance which they owe to the power that has protected and sustained them after various disorderly acts committed in the disturbance of the public peace, to the obstruction of lawful commerce, and to the oppression of our loyal subjects carrying on the same, have at length proceeded to open an avowed rebellion. September 1st, Richard Penn and Arthur Lee presented the Olive Branch Petition to Lord Dartmouth, Secretary of State for the Colonies, who attempted to present it to the King. Obviously, the King was not interested in this petition and refused even to read it. Thank you so much for listening. As I said, I'll be doing a mini-episode with Washington's general orders and some of the challenges he faced in building a new army. I feel like that deserves an episode all of its own. It'll probably be about a half an hour episode. Then in the next full episode, I will discuss the invasion of Quebec. Henry Knox will go to retrieve cannon from Ticonderoga to end the siege of Boston. And there will be a Patriot victory in Norfolk, Virginia. So please listen for that. Meantime, check out Patriot Podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Snows Island 1780. That's S-N-O-W-S-I-S-L-A-N-D-1780. No capitalization, no punctuation, just at Snows Island 1780. Also, feel free to check out my business, Victory Walking Tours, on Facebook and Instagram, at Victory Walking Tours. I'm doing historic walking tours of Yorktown, Virginia, discussing the history of Yorktown and York County up through the siege that effectively ended the American Revolution. Lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and looking forward to more episodes, do me a favor and show your support. Even if you can spare a dollar a month, that helps me. One thing I'd like to do is to be able to get some good recording equipment. Um, That would really help with this podcast. Uh, But if you check out my Facebook and Instagram pages, I I, uh, write a lot about the American Revolution and about figures who uh, fought in the American Revolution and about politicians and, you know, interesting trivia, uh, you know, things that happen on this day in revolutionary history, that sort of thing. So check out Facebook, check out Instagram, and check out my business. You know, if you come to uh, Williamsburg, Yorktown area for a vacation, you know, book a tour with Victory Walking Tours. You can check that out on Facebook or go to www.yorktownvictory.com. 
That's www.yorktownvictory.com. Thanks for listening.